going to lie. As a gut health dietitian, I do love that gut health is having a bit of a moment because I want folks to know how important it is to take care of their guts, that fiber matters, that you don't need to feel bloated all the time, and that it's not healthy to be chronically constipated. But then, of course, as soon as a trend really heats up, all of these businesses pop up to sell us things for our guts. I mean, have you noticed the recent explosion of gut health snacks out there? From squeeze pouches to sodas to bars, the gut-friendly snacks have arrived in a major way, and maybe a bit more in the U.S. than here in Canada, but it is starting here too. But what makes them gut-friendly? And how much of this is marketing versus helpful tools actually backed by science? I've brought a fellow gut health RD, Morgan Murdoch, to the Allsorts podcast for a kind of dietitian confessional on the trend of gut-friendly snacks. And we cover all the bases, like whether specific foods can actually have an impact on gut health to what's actually in these snacks and when they might make your gut symptoms worse. Yes, sometimes a gut-friendly snack isn't so friendly for your gut. I asked Morgan specifically because she's also the founder of her own sourdough cracker line, Unbothered Foods. So we dive deep into the idea of fermentation and sourdough, including how do you know if something is properly fermented and how sourdough transforms FODMAPs and gluten in wheat and whether or not sourdough is actually safe for someone with celiac disease. There are plenty of hot takes in this episode, including the massive chasm between how many people think nutrition works versus how it actually does. So let's not waste a minute and dive right in. Morgan, thank you so much for chatting with us on the All Sorts podcast. I have to admit, as like a podcast host, I don't want to play favorites, but I really do like talking to other gut health dietitians, not the least of which, I mean, obviously it's my wheelhouse, but when I started 15 years ago in digestive health, when like most dietitians couldn't even figure out like the gluten-free diet for celiac disease, like I felt so alone, oh my gosh. <laughs> like totally alone. And like, yeah. I don't know where I go for information. I don't know who I can like connect with for support and to like share ideas. And so it's one of my favorite yeah. things to like get to talk with other gut health RDs and share all of the incredible things that you're doing with this community. Yeah, I I feel that 100%. It's like, it's a very small world. Yeah. Dietitians feel like a small world. And then once you get down to like the specific niche of GI, it's like, oh, here, here we are. Here's the group of us. So yeah, like literally a tiny little handful. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's great to talk to you as well. Yeah, the internet can be used for some good sometimes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, why don't we start sort of like at the very beginning and like tell us a little bit about yourself and like why, like what got you into dietetics? Because like when I started at university, I didn't even know what a dietitian was. I just took nutrition because I was like, oh, I'm into that. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that's me too, honestly. Like when I was in college, I was originally going or I went for community health and then eventually, you know, got an additional degree in dietetics. But I think most, I don't want to speak too broadly, but I think most dietitians like start being a dietitian because they think like, I'm going to figure out how to be super healthy and then like, you know, tell people what to do. And I, 
you know, I don't want to speak too broadly, but at least back in the day, I feel like that was most dietitians, you know, how they kind of got into it was just like a personal interest in nutrition, whether that was healthy or not. And yeah, definitely got into it that way, like most people do. And I think I was just, I've always loved food and, you know, I've always like lived an active lifestyle and my family's very like, I guess I would say health focused. Both my parents come from like a healthcare background. So I knew I did not want to work in a hospital. And so I loved the kind of cross connection between like food and health as basic as that is. And, you know, had some personal, probably food relationship issues as I was further diving into nutrition, as many of us do. But yeah, I think it's, it's a huge journey when you start out studying nutrition, going into your career, and actually working with people, you really figure out like, oh, it's more than just like eat this and that, not that. And that's eventually how I discovered the area of, you know, digestive health as an area of practice in nutrition. 15% of the population has IBS, as you know, which is a crap ton of people, no pun intended. Literally. Um, Literally. And, you know, the more people I talked to, I was, I was in sports nutrition for a bit before and thought that I wanted to do sports nutrition. I worked at University of Notre Dame and their like fuel station. It was very like flashy, cool sports nutrition. And then I, you just realize like, oh, that's like, it's, it's a grind. I'll just leave it there. It's a huge grind. And not, and that I'm laughing at that knowing what I do now. I'm like, oh, I would do anything (laughs) for that. The baby grind as opposed to the like real grind of entrepreneurship. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, I think there was, I, I kind of like delved into a few places because I wasn't sure where I wanted to focus. And then, you know, the more and more people you talk to, the more patients you talk to, you realize there is you know, so many people with GI conditions that really, really need help. I myself don't have IBS or anything really specific like a diagnosis, but, you know, all my friends do. And you, everyone Mm -hmm. has a friend, if not yourself, that has a GI condition and just realize there's a huge need there for people that just really need help and people to stand in their corner to help them figure out individually what's going on. And we might not have all the answers as dietitians, but I would always tell patients that like, I'm at least on the island with you trying to like figure out the next steps and figure out at least from a food perspective, what could be going on. And yeah, I, that's how I got to where I am today. Obviously I'm, well, not obviously, well, I'm not seeing patients right now and I really do miss that because because of the need I saw in the GI space for more gut-friendly foods. We'll talk about what that means. I started a food brand and started my entrepreneurial journey of creating Unbothered Foods, which is a gut-friendly fermented sourdough cracker brand. We are low FODMAP, though we're not, we're not Monash certified. We're working on that. Everything is expensive in the food world. And so we're yes. you know just deciding when we can actually make that official. And really, we just we just launched within a year. So we're so new. But I feel really passionate about this space in food because I worked with hundreds of patients that needed help and they were on the low FODMAP diet because they were trying to figure out what was causing these issues. And a lot of times there's not good information online about the low FODMAP diet or like, you know, you Google that and it's just this giant list and then it's like shut down moment. And 
I want to be able to empower people to feel excited about eating again, and but that it, they can also trust the brand that's telling them, you know, what they're wanting yeah. to hear. And you know, marketing is everything, and it's very cool to be gut friendly right now. And big brands are saying gut this and gut that, and pre and probiotics, and just like it feels like slapping labels on things because it's trendy. And so I, I feel passionate about a dietitian led food brand that's actually like coming from a science background. So that's me yeah. in a massive nutshell. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I feel like there's like so much that we have to unpack there, you know, not the least of which that I think there is for us as dietitians before we become dietitians and then also the public when they interact with dietitians, I think there's a very different perspective on what nutrition is versus what dietetics and nutrition actually is. Like not the least of which I feel like the vast majority of like the DMs that I get or the emails that I get, people would be like, like rattling off all these diagnoses. So, you know, so like I have fibromyalgia and IBS and like hypertension and they're like, what food should I eat to make this better? Like this idea of like one food, like it's, it's one food or Mm -hmm. one supplement, like magic, like poof makes everything go away. Whereas like we as dietitians are like, okay, like like back up, you know, I know you might feel confused when we're like all foods fit or, you know, like eating potato chips or an ice cream is not the end of you while the internet is like shouting the, like the absolute opposite but yeah. we're like, hey, like, here's how we actually use food to help you feel better. And it's definitely not like one thing. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I hear that to my core. And I think that's that was the hardest. That is the, not hardest, but just like, yeah, most difficult part about working with people. I myself want a quick fix. Like if I if I was looking for that, I'd be like, yes, like tell me exactly what to eat and I'll do it. Especially if it's, you know, leading to GI symptoms with other conditions mixed in, you just, you feel frozen, you don't know what to do. So I totally understand like Googling what to eat or just tell me this, I'll do it because all of those things lead to so much stress in your life and our lives are already stressful. So it's like, you want to do the thing, to get it done and figure it out. And I'm a problem solver. So I would be doing that too. And, you know, that's the, that's what we get from the internet and, you know, TikTok, Instagram, that's just like, eat this for that. And it's done. And it's so much more nuanced than that. And it's, it's hard because it does take time to get to know yourself and your own body and what just, well-rounded eating is period you know it's interesting like when I was seeing patients I often found that we really needed to start just from the basics of just like what is a balanced meal and like what are what are some of the things we might be missing in general in our diet first that could be connected to these other symptoms that has nothing to do with like you know, the random one-off thing that you ate, or if you overate pizza and you feel like crap, okay, maybe let's just talk through, you know, what what is just balanced eating in general, checking in with ourselves more like intuitive eating style is a really hard like starting point, but it kind of is the starting point, you know? And that's why when I work with patients, 
and we'll get into the low FODMAP, but it's just, we can't ever just start with specific foods, even though those can be good tools that we get to. We should never start with really specific foods because what if our baseline isn't there and then we're just adding random things in, it's not really going to do anything. So. And I think that it's, it can be sometimes because, you know, most of us grew up in, most of us, all of us grew up like literally bathed in diet culture where we're like, Mm -hmm. oh, here's your goal and here's your specific diet plan or like meal plan to get there. And we're so used to very rigid structures around nutrition that the idea of like, here's the pattern. Here's what we want to do most of the time. Here's what we want to be focused on eating more of can feel so untethering. And I understand how that can feel a little scary for folks, particularly when they do have a really concrete goal of like, wow, I'm having like seven bowel movements a day and my gut hurts all the time. (laughs) Like, Just tell me exactly what to eat. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And it's almost because our brains have been trained that way through society. It's like almost overwhelming to think of something like as a pattern, you know, Mm. okay, that sounds general. And it's almost like people don't trust that that's going to be enough. It's very much distrust if you're talking in general things. And I mean, you know, we talk about smart goals and if a smart goal is like eat three meals a day or eat, you know, if it's more broad, people are like, what? Like, that's a goal. And I'm like, yeah, let's, we can show me that you can do that, you know, but it's harder than we think to have kind of just those core things that we're working on that, you know, might sound like silly goals or just basic things, but it's hard for us to do those basic things. So. Well, and I think that's, you know, one of the, I'm usually pretty skeptical of like the, you know, massive New York Times, like self-help books, but like Atomic Habits really resonated with me because one of the things that he said is, but so often we are focused on the end goal and not the fact that it is habits that are required to get us there. And, you know, I think dietitians, particularly when we give really practical, concrete advice, like you need to ensure that you're eating three meals a day, like roughly the same time. People like, that's not going to do anything. Like that's so basic. Like you don't know anything. Not thinking that in the back of our heads, we're going like, okay, so this is a gut brain issue and the gut really thrives on consistency and here's where we need to get the, you know, like they're not seeing all of that. The science in the back. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I feel that. I feel that. Yeah. And so I feel like this is a good time to start talking about, and, and sort of delineating the difference between things that are really good for your gut long-term versus what's helpful when something's off. Because I think as we talk about irritable bowel syndrome and as we talk about low FODMAP, there's always this mistaken idea that low FODMAP is somehow better for your gut. So like everybody should avoid FODMAP. So when we're talking a generally gut healthy dietary pattern, what's that look like? Yeah. And I think that's a huge differentiation. That's a really great point. Yeah. I mean, we're looking at, we're looking at a generally gut friendly diet or, you know, yeah, an eating pattern in a way that's going to be beneficial to your gut. It looks like, you know, more dense fiber dense foods. Something that I like to say is like eating in the rainbow, which really just encourages more produce that you can eat complex carbohydrates that come from 
fruits and vegetables as well, but also whole grains and beans and legumes. And really it's just diversity is huge in general. But I, as you mentioned, what does that look like when you're not feeling great or if you are in some type of flare and you're eating in a way that's kind of managing things? That looks very, very different. And like you said, low FODMAP is a tool that's used to help manage your symptoms partially, but it's also really a protocol in working with a dietitian. As I always say, you are working with someone while you're doing this to help figure out what those specific triggers could be. And because it's a protocol where you're spending time eliminating certain things, and I always will say that a caveat, low FODMAP is not for everyone, especially if you are working on your relationship with food because it does involve eliminating certain foods. But it's really to get to the core of what is this issue if it's related to food. And because you're eliminating certain foods, it can actually be more of a limiting non-beneficial diet. It's like, you know, it's limiting in fiber. It can limit in your diversity of nutrients. And that's why I encourage people to always do it when working with a dietitian, because we can also help make sure that you're having a balanced diet. You're not just eating like chicken and rice, you know? to be safe because that's also going to mm-hmm. cause you more GI issues later because you're constipated because you know you haven't been eating anything and then you've got SIBO 6 months later because your gut hasn't been moving for right <laughs> exactly exactly yeah. so i mean that is huge people people definitely think this type of diet equals healthier whether it's low fodmap or gluten free like whatever the kind of umbrella diet protocol is we have this just feeling of like, oh, that's healthier versus looking at our own individual journeys as like a a unique way that we need to eat to help make us feel the best. So if you are eating low FODMAP, it's because you're trying to, you're problem solving. Mm -hmm. It's not a blanket, like eat this because it's healthier. Because actually a lot of times it's not, it just isn't you're not getting those nutrients and the fiber that you need on a regular basis. And it's very limiting. It can also affect your mental health because you are so limited. And that's a whole nother conversation that's a part of it as well. So yeah, that's that's the big difference. I think I just trailed off there. But low FODMAP, we're managing our symptoms. We're figuring out you know, what's causing this while we work with a dietitian. And eating in a generally gut-healthy way looks like a lot more diversity, usually more fiber, and just yeah, like a more inclusive, well-rounded diet. And you've hopefully figured out your triggers when you're able to do that. I think that's such an important distinction to make because I think the wellness discourse is overwhelmingly, at least on the internet, but also with a lot of practitioners too, it's focused on elimination as nutrition. And elimination is not nutrition. Like, you know, after 15 years in digestive health practice, most of our clients are really surprised that our f- number one goal is to re-liberalize the diet. My goal is to get more foods back because yeah. we see people who restrict, feel better for a moment because they've upset the apple cart a little bit and then they feel much, much worse. And then they restrict, like they start restricting so much that they're coming to us on a really limited diet. They're like not getting enough protein, not getting enough fiber. You know, they're missing Mm -hmm. multiple nutrients that are absolutely critical for healing and immune support, like zinc. 
And we're like, okay, the reason why you're feeling like this, it wasn't originally like this. Something else happened, but then we went down this incorrect road of elimination. And, you know, I think particularly going back to my start where I did a lot of work with celiac disease and gluten-free and I'm, as a dietitian, like I'm so happy that the gluten-free trend existed because honestly, 20 years ago, if you had celiac disease, which you have no choice and you're eating this way for life, and some pretty yeah. garbage options. Like you had sad right, food. Right. And now, yeah, that's and true. Now, like that's as true. much as I hate people assuming gluten-free is healthy, because again, it's not, it's a therapeutic nutrition, you know, support. There's so much better food now for people so who many like options. really need yeah, it. Yeah, no, that's true. <laughs> yeah, very true. I that's a good way to look at it. Cause I yeah, I can definitely be cynical about diet trends as many of us can, but that's, that's a good way to look at it as kind of like, yeah, making more room at the table for people that need it while dealing with the trends. We'll deal with them if it's helpful for our, for our GI people. Yeah, totally. And, you know, particularly around IBS. And I think it's, you know, it's also important maybe to state that IBS is a multifactorial condition. And so nutrition is one part of it. And I've seen this in practice Mm -hmm. where, you know, we will be doing the low FODMAP protocol and people will feel like they feel better, like they're getting better, getting better. And then all of a sudden something happens and then people feel so Mm -hmm. much worse. And they're like, oh, I thought it was low FODMAP. I thought it was the food. And you're like, well, the food obviously was improving things, but now let's talk about stress. Like what happened in your life right now? Like people forget that it's not just the food. It is stress. There can be, you know, Mm -hmm. like bacterial issues, like it could actually be SIBO. We need to deal with that with your physician and antibiotics, you know, not at all, just food. So let's talk a little bit about FODMAPs versus gluten, because I know a lot of people, and I think the message has gotten out that it's not gluten-free for IBS, but I still think there's a little bit of conversation where people assume that low FODMAP is gluten-free. So... How does gluten slash wheat fit into a low FODMAP diet? Like, how's that work? Yeah, yeah, that's great. And, you know, it takes, I mean, I'm still with the gut and with foods. It's like there's an ever ending journey of learning. And I, even though I specialize in this area, I feel like I'm always learning. And yeah, there's so much knowledge that we still have surrounding all of what we're talking about. But so it's hard to grasp it all. But that's a really big misconception with low FODMAP that it is gluten-free. Gluten-free foods that are grain products such as rice or quinoa that are naturally gluten-free, they are low FODMAP because they are gluten-free. But not all gluten products are, or not gluten products aren't always not low, like high FODMAP. So let me like break it down a bit. So specifically with wheat, for example, that is not gluten-free. Gluten is the protein component of wheat. And when you have celiac disease, you cannot have the gluten component of wheat. With low FODMAP, FODMAPs are fermentable, oligosaccharide, disaccharide, monosaccharide, and polyols. And everyone like shuts the podcast off there because it's like too <laughs> like <me> are. <laughs> Um Shut down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I won't say that again, I promise. <laughs> but essentially what we're looking at is the simple carbohydrate component of that food. FODMAPs are 
carbohydrates that get bubbly in certain people's stomachs, which is what leads to those GI symptoms like, you know, loose stools, stomach cramping, bloating, that kind of a thing. So in wheat, the FODMAP components, which are the fructans, are the simple carbohydrates that get bubbly and this and that. So it's hard because they're in the same thing, gluten and the simple carbohydrates, they're in the same like wheat component. So that's why it's really hard. It's hard for us as dietitians to separate that out and even explain what's different about it. Because FODMAPs, we're so used to the gluten component because as you said, you know, we've got PSAs, gluten-free is trendy. Like we know that that feels, you know, it can feel more gut-friendly because gluten-free equals feeling better in our minds. But it takes a lot more diving into kind of the science behind what's leading to these GI symptoms. And that's the big difference between gluten and the simple carbohydrates. So what we're trying to do when we're on a low FODMAP diet is reduce the FODMAPs or simple carbohydrates that get bubbly in your stomach and wheat, if it's fermented through that fermentation process can make it low FODMAP through lots of magical things going on in the gut. That's such an important distinction to make. So gluten is a protein and FODMAPs are carbohydrates and you mentioned how it's hard to sort of distinguish them because in so many foods, the fructans and the gluten go hand in hand. And then the gluten-free foods, yes. like they don't have a lot of them, they're, they don't have any fructans. So, and I remember too, so like back in the day, because I've been at this so long, there were so many research papers back and forth with this quote unquote new thing of irritable bowel syndrome. You're like, are these gluten sensitive yeah. individuals or is it these things called FODMAPs, which 15 years ago was pretty controversial, but there was there were a lot of trials happening trying to say, is this non-celiac gluten sensitivity? Because that was really the first sort of condition to gain attention and then IBS started to come to the fore. And it's like, yeah, no, it doesn't seem like it's the gluten, it's the fructans. And that means theoretically that someone, while someone with celiac disease is never going to consume wheat gluten, which is in, you know, because I'm plant-based, like so many, you know, like burgers and like veggie sausages and all these kind of things. Mm -hmm. Technically, someone with IBS can consume purified wheat gluten because there's no carbohydrate in it whatsoever. So if if there can yeah. be a low FODMAP product with wheat gluten, like that's actually possible, which I think most people wouldn't realize. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, which makes total sense because as soon as you start Googling something, it's like, this is too sciencey. it's too much. So, but yeah, yeah, that's a, a great way to differentiate it. To put it simply... Gluten is protein, FODMAPs are carbohydrates, and it's figuring out, you know, which you're sensitive to, I suppose. And most people that are gluten or have issues with gluten might also have celiac disease, which aren't, it doesn't just lead to symptoms, leads to, you know, not being able to absorb nutrients, which is very different than an intolerance which is a whole nother kind of can of worms, intolerance versus celiac. Totally. And so let's shift a little bit to like gut-friendly foods and like the trends around gut-friendly foods. So fermentation is a big one. And I think particularly for folks with IBS, they may be surprised. Like I tell everyone to get the Monash app, right? I'm like, get the Monash app so you can like scroll through the foods and see. And a lot of people are surprised. They're like, 
why can I have sourdough? Like that doesn't, I thought wheat had fructans and I can't Mm -hmm. eat it, but why is it saying that like sourdough is okay? What is fermentation doing to wheat that makes it okay? Yes. And when I was working with patients, same as you, I would tell them all to download the Monash app. And my favorite part of the conversation was telling them like, but you can have sourdough. It like felt like the happy part because we're saying, here's all the things that you have to avoid for now, but yeah, you can have sourdough. So very fun thing because you can frame a lot of things around like a piece of sourdough bread, right? Like you can make some toast, you can have a sandwich. Like there's so many things that feel exciting when you incorporate sourdough. So the reason that it's low FODMAP is that through the fermentation process, which in real sourdough, there are live cultures or bacteria from that starter culture that's fermenting. And that breaks down the FODMAPs or the fructans so that it comes to a lower level than a standard white piece of bread or regular piece of bread. Or like, you know, even thinking past like regular crackers or whatever, whatever the wheat product is, usually it is high FODMAP because the fructans are still there bubbling in your stomach. But when it's fermented, a really simple way to think about it is kind of pre-bubbling in the product, breaking it down before you eat it. So it makes it easier to digest for those that, you know, might have issues with fructans or regular wheat products. The other thing that's cool about it is that it adds lactobacillus bacteria, you know, as you're eating it, which can also aid in that digestive process as well. But it's really important to be able to understand, well, how do I know it's real sourdough? Is, is, is a big yeah. question because there's lots of sourdough things out there. There are so many. And I, and I feel like as a dietitian, whenever something becomes a trend, like food marketers learn how to do like the minimum viable product in order to like slap yes, a label yes, on. Like when for sure. omega-3, yeah. it's like, here are five milligrams of DHA. Oh, it's got omega-3s. And you're like, that's useless. I don't. So like, yeah. what's real sourdough? Like how would we actually know if something is real sourdough versus like marketing sourdough? Yeah, yeah. Well, the fun part is, is that there are flavor components that can be added to products to make it taste like sourdough. So sourdough, as we know and love it, has that yummy, like tangy sort of flavor, yeah. which you could you can get that flavor-ish from something that's just labeled like, you know, like a sourdough loaf of bread. We have food scientists that are super smart and can figure out ways to give us that flavor component. So if it's just the flavor you're looking for, you can get that in the random loaf of bread that says sourdough. However, if you're really looking for kind of the benefits of a fermented food or say your low FODMAP, it's important to know what to look for on the ingredient label to actually see, is this a real sourdough product? Again, not to villainize something labeled sourdough, it's still a food that you can eat. But if you're looking for that fermented food, I would say flipping it on the back, looking at the ingredient list, and look for keywords like sourdough culture or sourdough starter. Those are those are really probably the, the main two that are on there. There might be like a really hippie type one that's like mother, like sourdough mother, you know? But it will be on there for sure. And 
I would say if it's a real sourdough product, like our product, we're very vocal about its fermentation and how long we ferment it because that's a longer, more costly process. You know, it's really easy to throw a bunch of ingredients in a big vat, mix it up, throw it in a machine and bake it. But what does it look like to actually ferment it for a long amount of time, fold it at certain times or whatever, you know, whatever the product needs, it's a lot more involved and timely. And so people are going to say on that package or on their website, like fermented for X amount of time, you will, you won't, you won't miss it. If you have to look really, really hard, that's kind of an indication that like, it might not be real sourdough because we're very proud of like the real fermentation process that it takes to get there. Amazing. So how is there sort of like, should it be 12 hours? Should it be 24 hours? Like in terms of particularly because we're looking to ferment long enough to get rid of the fructans, how long should we be looking for? Yeah. So the the very, very minimum is 12 hours. You'll see different, like different research will show different amounts of time, but 12 hours is the minimum amount of time for it to be fermented. I usually like to recommend looking for like a 24-hour minimum fermentation, but the minimum that I've seen in research is, is 12 hours. So it doesn't count if it's fermenting on the, you know, if it's fermenting for 30 minutes. So yeah. we're not counting that as real fermentation. Yeah. And I am seeing, I had a, a bread company pitch to me and they're like, oh, it's f- fermented, but it was a sh- very, very short fermentation short. time for the flavor. And then they add yeast to like, because yes. you haven't fermented long enough. So we should talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, that's actually another thing to look for on the ingredient list. If it says yeast, it might be an indication that they haven't fermented it naturally long enough because yeast from the environment is what's fermenting that natural fermentation process versus adding yeast into a product. So that's a, that's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. So if it says inactive yeast, however, that's probably not leading to like the actual fermentation process because it's when it's inactive. Well, it's not activating. It's not fermenting. Fun fact, I just learned that inactive yeast can be added. It's, it's a natural thing that can be added to a product to extend the shelf life, but it's not doing anything to the fermentation process. But if you see yeast, on just yeast on the ingredients, then that's what is fast fermenting the product and it's not breaking down the components needed like the FODMAPs to make it more um, easily digestible for those on low FODMAP. So that's a good one too. Look for yeast, not on the ingredient list. It's an easy one to look for. And I always feel, I always feel like dietitians say stuff and then we're like, I need to have seven asterisks right now. But like the asterisk is not that yeast is bad for you. It's not bad for your gut. It's just that when we're looking for things that are properly fermented so we can enjoy the mono low FODMAP diet, a yeast might be like a hint that they are shortening it out a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Which doesn't make it healthier, just allows you to continue what you need to do on the low FODMAP diet. And what about fermentation, specifically sourdough and gluten? Because I think that's another sort of misunderstanding and like as when I'm working with people with celiac disease, we're like, oh, but like sourdough eliminates the gluten. And you're like, no, 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 no. It doesn't eliminate sourdough products, even properly fermented are not okay for someone with celiac disease. But fermentation does actually change the gluten a little bit. 
Yeah. Yeah. So you might have to fill in some gaps in like what happens to the gluten bonds because yeah. I've got a one, one track mind and right now I'm on, you know, cracker production. But <laughs> when you are, when you are fermenting, I mean, the fermentation really does focus on the carbohydrate component uh, mostly. However, there is some effect on the gluten where it, in simple terms, kind of like pre-digest some of the gluten there. It doesn't take it all away. So mm-hmm. like when you have celiac, you can't have any gluten. And so do not have sourdough unless it's gluten-free sourdough, which there are some brands out there. But it's really just reducing it from what I understand. And again, you can fill in the gaps. And so that's why if you have a gluten sensitivity, it, there might be a little bit more wiggle room in there because there's a certain amount that your body might be able to handle and the fermentation process might bring it to that level or change the composition of it in a bit in a way that you can digest it easier than a regular wheat product. When people are asking us about the product, when people see gut-friendly, they always assume it's gluten-free. So they go, are these gluten-free? And so that's always, you know, a fun dietitian education moment of kind of explaining. I say, well, we call them gluten friendly. And that allows me to kind of explain what the fermentation does, makes it easier to digest for those that might typically be sensitive to wheat products. But that's extremely individual. So mm-hmm. I would encourage people to kind of like test at your own risk. That sounds scarier than it needs to. But, you know, you can, if you're gluten sensitive, then you might try having just a small piece of sourdough bread or something like that to see if it affects you. The exciting part is knowing because you're gluten sensitive to gluten, it doesn't mean you can't have it at all. So there might be a little bit, again, it's one of those broader things that we don't like because our brains are so black and white, but there's a big difference between gluten sensitive and celiac. So this is kind of a, a fun a fun fact for you. You might get to try some sourdough. For my clients who, you know, I always ensure that they go and they do their celiac screening and make sure they get a clean bill there. But then when it does seem that like wheat products or gluten-containing products are sort of messing with them a little bit for my clients who are like, oh, but I can go to France and I can eat a croissant. Those are the people I'm like, oh, sourdough. Yeah. So let's try yeah. sourdough and let's see how that is for you. And there are so many immunogenic properties in wheat. And there are other compounds other than gluten that might actually be leading to the sensitivity. But it is for those people who are I'm like, you should try sourdough. And then if yeah. you just need gluten-free sourdough here in Vancouver, we have this incredible bakery called Alchemy that does the most Ooh. wonderful gluten-free sourdough <gasps> that is exactly like quote unquote real bread. I don't know how oh my they gosh. do it. It's brilliant. <laughs> I need to go. I need to make a trip to Canada yeah. to specifically go there because who knows? Maybe we'll have a gluten free line someday. Mm-hmm. Ooh. <laughs> that sounds amazing, though. Plotting Any excuse to eat sourdough bread is, I'm there. I'm not mad at it. Yeah. I, I wanted to talk uh, a little bit specifically about unbothered foods and the context of gut health snacks because I really want to get in because you're in this space. I want to like get your expert opinion on like this whole gut health snack like trend and like the different products out there yes. and what you think. So let's start with like what's a dietitian gut health snack actually look like? Because you made awesome fermented sourdough crackers. So tell us about unbothered crackers. Yeah. Yeah. So unbothered crackers or unbothered foods is we make fermented sourdough crackers. So like we were talking about before, we're really committed to the long fermentation process. 
and using high quality ingredients that add up to a better digestive process for someone that's eating them. They are low FODMAP because they're real sourdough. However, you know, gut friendly means something different to everyone. And that's just the honest truth. So these are not gut friendly to those that have celiac disease because they are a real sourdough product. But we're kind of in that middle niche where it's like, well, I don't have celiac, but I'm not really sure about gluten. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we kind of, we hope that people can kind of snack and figure out like, where do I stand in that line, knowing that they don't have celiac disease. A gut-friendly snack for a dietitian, it probably looks like lots of different things for people. But, you know, my current snack, because I'm always making crackers, is probably um, an unbothered cracker with some goat cheese. And there's this local, like, dip person that they have this, like, tomato jam, which would be low FODMAP Mm -hmm. because it's, like, cooked down tomatoes and some spices and things and a little sugar. Ooh! She said it. There's sugar in it. Okay, let's let's talk about sugar. We I did not plan this, but we need to talk about sugar because one of the things I cannot stand on the internet is that people say all the time sugar destroys your gut microbiome. And yet sugar, like regular old white sugar is mm-hmm. a low FODMAP food. Yeah. And particularly because I think one of the things that people don't understand is that if something is really well digested and absorbed, it's Mm -hmm. now in your bloodstream and therefore not traveling through your gut interacting with your gut microbiome. So like unless you have sucrase isomaltase deficiency, like unless you are like physically unable to digest sugar, you absorb that sugar. and. Like, how's that messing with your microbiome if it's already in your bloodstream and like nowhere near your gut bugs? Yeah. Yeah. You know, the answer to that is, I don't know what these people are talking about (laughs) and nor do I click on whatever it is that they're posting to try to understand because I'm just like, no, no, it's, it's literally just a carbohydrate Mm -hmm. period. That's it. That's the secret, everybody. I don't know what I don't know what they're talking about when they're talking about destroying the gut microbiome. It's just like it just doesn't it doesn't connect. It doesn't connect, but it is very flashy to click on. So. Yeah, well, because people, I mean, it's an easy mark. Sugar's an easy mark, and you know, no dietitian yeah. is going to say eat more sugar. <laughs> like just yeah, pile on yeah. the sugar every day. Like clearly, that's right. not what we're saying. But when I wrote "Good yeah. for Your Gut," I did a really deep dive into the literature. And because my question was, you know, we do have, we actually have surprisingly little evidence for direct effects on diet and the microbiome in actual humans versus, you know, cultures or animals. But what is really clear is that a high sugar, high fat, low fiber dietary pattern is not good for your microbiome. Like we're very clear on the Mm -hmm. the standard sort of like how we eat in North America. No bueno for our gut bacteria. But I could not find a single study that challenged the inclusion of sugar in an otherwise healthy diet Mm. at all. Like it doesn't exist. And I know- Uh, Yeah. People, because I will absolutely use sugar, you know, like a teaspoon of sugar in a salad dressing is mm-hmm. like magic for your salad. And people are like, oh, makes you, you eat the salad. 
Yeah. And it just, it just softens out the bitterness and the earthiness and people Mm -hmm. who are like, oh, I don't like vegetables because, you know, they're just too real. You know, like a single teaspoon of sugar in a salad that serves four people, it eliminates that. People are so on off about sugar that they're like, oh, well that's sugar. Therefore that's unhealthy. It's like, not at all. Right. Yeah. 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 And your your gut is okay. Your gut yeah. is okay. You can have the sugar, and yeah, it's like that's not the that's not the issue there. Let mm-hmm. leave sugar alone. It's gonna be okay. It's gonna be okay. And actually, your your body probably needs some of it, especially if you've been avoiding it like the plague. If you're you know deep into diet culture, like your brain is probably not getting everything that it needs to be on point. So let's add that teaspoon of sugar. Exactly. (laughs) Let's make it happen. Okay. So other gut health snacks. One of the things, because you're in the States and I'm in Canada, I see all these glossy things on the internet. And then I try them when I'm down there. But there is such an explosion. And I was reading, I don't know if you read Snackshots, the newsletter. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, yes, of course. And so, I mean, of course. So, I will link it in the show notes for anyone who's super nerdy on like food and Bev and design because it's the coolest newsletter mm-hmm. ever. But she did this amazing deep dive on how like the low FODMAP trend is really taking off. And there's all these cool products yes. like Belly yep. Welly Bars, for example, and things like Olipop, which we can't really get here. I've tried it, it's delicious. But there, what makes so we were talking about like a gut friendly snack and some of these things yeah. like belly welly bars are really they're low FODMAP. So like that's the obvious reason why they're saying gut friendly. Olipop mm-hmm. has prebiotic fibers, which is why yep. they're saying it's gut friendly. Like what should people yeah. be looking for to sort of get through the marketing? Like which of these products are actually good if you're looking for prebiotics? Like how many prebiotics is enough? Like like what's legit and what's just glossy marketing? Yep. Yep. And there's a ton to unpack there. Yeah. Actually, I bringing it back to Snackshot quickly. I, I had reached out to her because I saw her post that and got the article. And um, she actually came to Chicago and did this like snacks bus tour. So I've met her and talked with her. And yeah, it's very, um, snacks are very much the thing right now, especially if you're like, algorithm is telling you that it's very much uh the thing so but yeah i mean a a lot of it is marketing so i think we should again maybe this is like a my cynical brain slash dietitian brain knowing what actually is in foods versus what's on the labels but it's kind of just being like okay it's saying this but what does that mean just asking that additional question when it's saying this is gut friendly this is that it's just kind of like, what do they mean by that? And not just immediately trusting, knowing that this is a product that's being sold to me. Like, mm-hmm. that's something that we need to understand, especially if you're looking for those products with a condition. I think there are a lot of people that have digestive issues and just look up gut friendly this and like just trust it because it says gut friendly. And unfortunately, that's not a regulated like term. So the big thing of, fiber, well, sure, that'll say gut friendly because some people might be able to handle that, but that could be like gut destroying for some people whose bodies can't absorb that. So it's just kind of, it is that individual thing where we're figuring out what's gut friendly to us. Low FODMAP is is generally what we would 
call gut friendly if we're thinking like less digestive issues. So if you want kind of like a safe food and you see that something is low FODMAP, that that might be a way to go, okay, I haven't had this before. Like it's low FODMAP. Okay. For many people, it might be easy to digest. Maybe that's okay for me. Personally, I guess I would see that and, and think this isn't going to lead to as many symptoms. And I think that could be a safe way to look at the term low FODMAP on products. The interesting thing with, I won't name any specific brands, but with lots of these beverages that are saying, um, that are like high fiber beverages, I'm a little like wishy-washy with those because at the surface level, it's fine to get fiber through your drinks. You know, 10 grams of fiber through one beverage is fine. If you're someone that can handle anything in your gut, that can handle these things, oftentimes the fiber that's added to lots of these like high fiber products that aren't whole foods, so the fiber has literally been added into it, comes from chicory root or inulin, which are fine natural fibers for most people. But if you have IBS slash R, especially if you're on the low FODMAP diet, that those are not low FODMAP because they're super fermenty in your like gut. Like the literal so, worst thing for you at this moment. <laughs> exactly. And so let's drink it all in a beverage in about five minutes and just like dump it. We're just dumping pure fermented, like fermentable stuff in your gut. I don't have IBS, but I, I personally can't handle chicory root. And so when people have issues with like drinks, like protein drinks, especially plant-based protein yeah. drinks. Most of them have inulin or chicory root because it is an emulsifier. It is something that adds some fiber, not naturally bad or evil, but it might not feel good for those that have a GI condition. So how confusing is that to see gut-friendly plastered on everything and to this brand and to their experts... I shouldn't do the air quotes thing. That's mean. To this brand and their experts, you know, it's like add a bunch of this type of fiber without knowing, oh, there's this whole subset of population that are looking for gut-friendly products that that will literally hurt their stomach. So I don't know. There's so much to navigate. It's hard being a consumer. There is. It is really hard. Like it's hard for us as dietitians to keep up and then as a consumer. But I yeah. feel like that delineation is really great that you gave that if something is quote unquote gut friendly because it's low FODMAP, that's a really good indication that something's just going to be gentler on your gut. And so mm-hmm. if you're, even if you don't have IBS and you're just going through like a really bloaty time and you're like having yeah. a hard time, this might be a great thing because you know it's going to be gentler. But then everything else that purports to be gut health like most of the time it will be because they've enhanced fiber or probiotic. Oh my gosh. I have a whole thing with probiotics because just because something is a bacteria doesn't mean we have data to show that that specific bacteria does anything. And most of the probiotics that are added to foods are spore forming bacteria that have research to show that they stay alive in those products, which is like a win over a decade ago. But no research to show that they have any benefit for the human microbiome, which is one thing. But then you have that other category of fiber foods. And while we do have a lot of research 
to confirm that prebiotics, also when you give them inadequate amounts, like the the amount of prebiotic, like inulin, for example, that you need is like between like five and 20 grams of fiber a day. Most people with anything going on in their gut cannot handle that. Like that will feel like lava, like molten lava bubbling away in your gut and like tearing away your gut lining. So you do have to, I love that question of like, why? You say it's gut friendly. Why? What does that actually mean? Because if you're an IBS gal and you pick up all that inulin stuff, like you're going to feel awful. So bad. And it's, you know, the other thing that to look for, if there is something that you are eating and it's from the supplement aisle, I'm just saying this on a broad stroke. Like if it's in a supplement area versus a food area in the grocery store, that's something that we should be thinking about. Like, how is this not registering as food in our data system? And a lot of times those foods, again, won't name specific brands. But if you find them near the supplements, it's probably an indication that there's things added to it that might not sit super great, including inulin and chicory root. Again, if you have a stomach of steel and you're like, I can eat anything and it doesn't matter, like that's fine. But for many people, that's not the case. So look for food and starting in the food area, I would say, generally. (laughs) I feel like that's a good place to start. The other thing that I'm noticing, too, is all of these, like, candies, like, no sugar candies that you look on the back and they're like, we have 25 grams of fiber. I'm so curious as to how that's going to pan out because a great I do have IBS and me and inulin are not friends. Like, fructans are my number one, if something's going to cause me an issue, it is fructans. And I can eat like a whole bag of those Smart Sweets candy. I'm just going to say it because I do like them. So like shout out to Smart Sweets. Mm -hmm. I think they're delicious. Yeah, Um, yeah. But I can eat a whole bag of that and it doesn't bother me. And so I think part of what is legally termed a fiber we're still not aware of the physiological impacts of that fiber. Maybe it's doing yeah. absolutely nothing for us, <laughs> you know? Um, maybe some of them, yeah. like inulin, we know are, but like the soluble corn fibers, for example, like we don't yeah. really know. So if you're like, oh, this candy is like boosting my gut, and you're like, mm, probably not. It's delicious. And if you just right. want to have a candy without the sugar because you don't want to crash, yeah. Go for it. Sure. But yeah. maybe let's not think we eat candy for our gut health. Like, let's think we eat like vegetables well, and grains for our gut health. That's where we need to get exactly. back to. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it, that's where it's all back down to like simple. Like, is this one thing saying it's going to solve something for me? Red flag. That's a red flag. Yeah. Like, if it's saying eat this and you will feel this, that's usually a red flag. And that takes us back to earlier in our conversations of like patterns and including these things into our diet versus looking at this, like no one should eat my sourdough crackers and go, my stomach is going to feel better because I'm eating this one thing in my diet. It's We're looking at the whole picture. So that's so important. It's just, it's just adding in. Okay. So I'm going to like flip it a little because we spent so much time talking about like dietary patterns also to be really wary of gut health snacks. I want to, as mm-hmm. like a last question before we get into the rapid fire because you're a gut health dietitian, if someone was working on their overall, we're going to frame it as a dietary pattern, we're working on our overall dietary pattern, mm-hmm. what are four th- or five 
things you would like to see them consume more of? Assuming someone doesn't have IBS, they're like, no, I just like, my gut's not amazing or just want to keep it amazing. What are like four or five things you would say, okay, start bringing these into your dietary pattern? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So pattern is the first thing, like what is our pattern of eating? That would be the first thing. If you're someone that's like, you know, I'm working a ton and forgot to eat lunch or whatever, whatever the case may be, or I'm skipping this or that, I think getting into a regular pattern is key. And then within those, we're looking at a, a balanced plate goal. So the basic of that is some kind of protein source, some kind of carbohydrate source and a complex carbohydrate source maybe coming from some non-starchy veggies. Another category I would add in if your stomach is feeling up to it is beans and legumes are an awesome source of fiber. But again, that's one of those things where if you're not feeling super hot, I probably wouldn't eat a bowl of black bean soup. So yeah, beans and legumes, whole grains are huge. I think we're trying to like bring, make, let's make wheat cool again. Yes. Um, you know, we're really, we're trying to do that too. I know that you are a supporter of wheat as well, but whole grains are huge, whatever that means. It doesn't have to be wheat grains, but you know, oats, quinoa, that kind of a thing, things that are the actual whole grain, add that back into the diet and make sure that you're drinking plenty of water. But it's just those those basic things. And just think the phrase, like, where's the color on my plate or eat the rainbow? And if that feels overwhelming to you, it's just taking your really basic meal. Let's even say it's a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Like on the surface, people might go, that's not healthy. But maybe we make, maybe we get some whole grain bread or even sourdough could be a fun way to change it up. Your peanut butter is going to be a good source of protein and fat. The jelly in there might give you an additional carbohydrate boost. And then, okay, where's the color? Maybe not from the jelly. Maybe we throw in like peaches are seasonal here in Chicago right now. And we cut up a peach and we cut up a mini cucumber to add to that. So it's just, it doesn't have to be like gourmet meal prep things, but really we're just looking at basic meal patterns and eating patterns a basic balance on your plate of color, protein, fat, and carb, and then just making that extra effort to add in those higher fiber, more complex carbohydrates, sweet potatoes, beans, whole grains, fruits and veggies, that kind of a thing. And of course, unbothered foods, sourdough crackers as a snack. We aren't a super, we are not a high fiber food because because of how they're fermented and the wheat that we do use. So they're not a high fiber snack, but they're definitely like a, like a more gut friendly food option to add in a carbohydrate component to your plate. And in an easy way to add in a fermented food that isn't say kimchi or something like that might be, that might be a little bit more unapproachable. Fermented foods. That's a whole other category. I forgot. I know. Duh. I feel like there's a whole yeah. We have a whole other yeah. podcast like, um, just talking yeah. about fermented foods. <laughs> okay, let's let's shift to the rapid fire. So as always, I end every episode with rapid fire. I don't give these questions to the guests. They're like cute little softballs. So first one is, and I love asking this of entrepreneurs: one thing you learned about yourself in starting a business. I'm always learning things about myself, whether that's a good thing or not. This is a funny answer that I recently have thought about that sometimes I just want to quit things. 
Like, I think a good entrepreneur is one that's like, I'm going to push through and like, I want to work through this problem. And that's constantly what you're doing as an entrepreneur. That's so hard. And I really have to like, work against that. My natural is like, I want someone else to figure this out. And when you're working by yourself, that is not an option. And so I have a tendency to just put things off, put things off. We weren't recording at this point, but I need a new computer. There's one sitting in my corner that I need to switch to. And I'm just not because it's like, it feels like I want someone else to figure out how to do all this stuff. So that's kind of a, that's kind of a sucky thing that I've really realized about myself is that I, yeah, I'm realizing that I kind of want to be a quitter sometimes. Then a good thing is, is I feel like, you know, I, I am like, I am able to do what I'm saying I'm wanting to do. Like I, I can follow the dream that I have as basic as that sounds like you could do it. Like, just do it. It's so cheesy. I hate it when people would say that when I was like starting out, like follow your dreams and la la la. But it's true. Like you can do what you say you want to do. It's just committing to that thing. So that's a cool feeling to have. I love, I love both of those things. I think sometimes knowing when to quit being like, I'm, I'm working on this, you know, specific project or this specific thing that I'm just grinding and trying to make work and be like, why? Maybe I let this go because yeah, it's God. keeping me from doing the main thing or yeah, I yeah, I also love yeah. that. I think sometimes you just you need to know when you're like enough is enough. I need to put this aside. <laughs> All right, favorite comfort food. Ooh. I love mac mm-hmm. and cheese. Like craft, yes. like straight. Well, Annie's recently because I feel like Annie's is like taking over. I think it usually involves cheese. Now that I'm thinking about it, because like just a classic like nacho or like from a Mexican restaurant, like the like real like Kate like melted queso. It's like white people version of queso. Your favorite place for healthy or healthy-ish eats in Chicago. Sweet green is kind of basic. It's kind of taking over too. Do you have a sweet greens in Canada? We don't have sweet green in Canada yet, but I've been to them in the States and they are pretty fun. Yeah. Yeah. They're good. That's a little bit more basic of one. Gosh. Recently I've been we've been trying to I've been trying to change up like my order if we're getting like Thai out. I've been trying to get like some type of like balanced-ish meal versus just like a, a pad thai or something like that. So I don't really have a great answer for that because my husband and I, we also just like love food and we go to so many different places that we just do not have, we don't have like a lot of just places we always go. We're always trying to like find new places in Chicago, but That's I will amazing. give a shout out. If anyone listening in Chicago lives near Middlebrow, they actually have a pizza that has a sourdough base. And so they have amazing sourdough pizza and their salads are incredible. So, you know, that's a balanced meal, right? Salad I love it. And oh, pizza. yeah. P- pizza's got all of the <laughs> things on it. I don't know why they. Th- so, what's the name of the pizza place? Middlebrow. And if people, if you live in Chicago, you already know. You already know. Amazing. Okay. Do you have a secret mm-hmm. talent, no matter how small or how big? I think a secret talent might be that I can like pick up sports easily. That's a, that's a big talent. Cause I cannot like, 
you know, like, yeah, I guess I grew up playing sports. So like, like my husband's recently gotten into golf, you know, cause we're 30, we're in our thirties now. So that's what you do. Apparently. And yeah. Apparently I like grew up playing tennis and things. And so he's been, you know, spending tons of money on like golf lessons and all this stuff. And, uh, we went out to the range together and I, I could like hit it as good as him, but don't tell him that. Make sure he doesn't listen to the podcast. But I just picked up. Yeah. 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 You can't listen. You can't no, listen to I this thing I did. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. A natural ability for most sports. That's my talent. That's so impressive to me because I have the opposite <laughs> and my husband and now my son are both like that too. They're just natural born athletes where my daughter is more like chips, couch and chill. Like that's for Amy. <laughs> I'm very, I'm very. At least you have someone with you. Exactly. I'm very active now, but as a kid, I was like, so, I was so weak. I was so weak and feeble yeah. and couldn't do anything. I cheated in <laughs> PE all the time. And yes, you can That's make hilarious. that happen. Okay. Last one before we close. <laughs> uh, the best thing you've watched this year. Ooh. Well, I have to say the bear. Well, and I also believe the bear because it's in Chicago. And yeah, like that was definitely the best thing I watched this year because like I said, we love going out to eat. And what was so cool about it is that in, have you watched the second season? I won't like give any spoilers. So not only have I watched the second season, it came out a month later in Canada than it did in the States. Not only have I watched it once, but then because I got so sick, we had to cancel our first podcast on Friday. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All I could do was lay down. I was inspired oh to go gosh. back to the beginning. So now I've watched both seasons <gasps> again. So now I've twice. Oh, cleared that's incredible. it all twice. I love that show so much. Oh, my gosh. I love it. Okay, well, no no spoiler, but in in the second season, there's this sort of like montage of lots of restaurants. Mm-hmm. like, And it kind of flashes a bunch of different like plates and like – it was so fun because we were watching it and we're like, oh my gosh, that's that place. And we could tell by just looking at the specific dish that they showed. And we like, you know, there's a bazillion people that made a blog on like all the spots that were featured in the bear. And like, we were able to, we, we knew like 90% of them just by the food that they were showing and like the table and setting it was on. So clear sign that we're spending too much money on food, but that was very, very fun being in Chicago and having that come out. It's so cool. I think it's one of the, yeah, most exciting things to be on TV in a while, for sure. Yes. So good. Highly recommend. Morgan, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. I love picking your brain about all things gut health and gut health snacks and trends. I'm really excited for everyone to try Unbothered Foods. We're going to put a little discount code in the show notes for everyone. So check that out. Support this new dietitian, woman-owned business because I love to see it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is a, a fun conversation and I really appreciate your perspective and all your questions. So it's been fun. Something you probably already know about me if you've been listening to the pod for a while now is that while I have a very evidence-based approach to nutrition, I'm also a consumer just like you. I like new things. I love trying new brands and I get excited about the trends as much as you do. So it was so fun to dive into Gut Snacks with Morgan and get her take on what's happening in the food world and also... 
I love supporting a fellow dietitian trying to put out a really different, trustworthy product out into that void. I'd love to know what you think about this episode. And also, what other topics do you want us to cover on the pod? Who do you think I should talk to next? Let me know over on our Instagram at the all sorts pod so we can continue to shape the conversation together. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the All Sorts Podcast, which is produced by myself and edited by Brian McCallman. We are grateful to live and work on the unceded and ancestral territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Until next week, friends, be well. Be well.